Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Beer Ladies Podcast with your hosts, Lisa, Katie, Christina, and myself, Tandy. You can find us at our website or all over social media. Our website is beerladiespodcast.com and our social media, Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon, Blue Sky, TikTok, and even Facebook are at Beer Ladies Pod or Beer Ladies Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can find our merch store link uh, on any of our social media bios uh, or in the show notes for this episode. And if you'd like to sponsor an episode, do mail us at beerladiespodcast at gmail.com. Now back to the beer. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the Beer Ladies Podcast. My name is Christina, and I'm here today with my co-host, Lisa, and a very special guest, Susan Flavin. And I'm so excited that she's here, and I can't wait to talk to her. If you are not familiar, she is a beer historian extraordinaire who has been getting up to all kinds of experimental archaeology lately, and we just can't wait to talk to her. But before we dig into that, we're going to start with the perennial favorite. What are you drinking? And I'm going to start with asking our guest, Susan, what are you drinking? I am drinking a beer, a Groot beer from a Groot ale from a microbrewery, which is across the road from where I'm living at the moment, called Kettlesmith. Um, and they've made it in collaboration with Woolly Grange Hotel, which is a 17th century uh, manor house here in Bradford and Avon. And they've brewed it with some fresh herbs from the kitchen garden there, which is really nice. Um, and it's a really nice quite red colored um, mm, beer. Not th th there is some hops in it, but it's not hoppy at all. It's quite fruity. It's really very good. And Lisa, what are you drinking? I am drinking, this will probably come as no surprise to our regular listeners, but I have a Ballycock Cabin Bambrick's Brown because this is my my sort of weekday go-to or really my my whenever I have a chance go-to. Um, so always a reliable and, you know, again, it's got that sort of lovely rubyish color. It looks darker on screen, but always, uh, always a pleasure to have that. Although I'm looking forward to to uh, getting a couple of bottles of their mild that's just come out as well. So uh, might, that might be a future episode. Oh, yes. A nice mild. I haven't had one in a while. <laughs> that sounds epic. And I am being probably a little boring and I'm just drinking a strawberry and banana smoothie because I feel like I'm getting sick again, friends. I don't know what is going on with me this year. But anyway, enough moaning. Yeah, <laughs> enough moaning. Um, so, Susan, I guess the first question I really want to ask you is beer history. How did you get into beer history? What drew you to beer history? Tell us all about that. I suppose technically I'm not really a beer historian I'm more a food historian and I kind of came to beer because we were looking at it's part of a much bigger project on food 
Um, we're looking at sort of isotope analysis, looking at household accounts, looking at what's in, in pots, you know, the lipid analysis mm -hmm. of pots. So all kinds of ways of examining food. And the idea with beer was that it is the one food um, that you can look at in great detail, much more detail than any other food, because there's such good documentary evidence for that. So that was kind of a way of sort of integrating practice-based history and really looking at in minute forensic detail at one foodstuff. And of course, beer is really exciting because it's it's consumed in such huge quantities. It's such a vital part of diet. Um, it seems a really good place to start in terms of understanding nutrition and social, you know, social change and cultural change at the same time as well. Very absolutely. Cool. And I think we're both, I'll just say quickly, we're both very excited, or at least I'm very excited because this is a chance for me to use my archaeology degrees, which otherwise are just sitting somewhere <laughs> in a box. So uh, this absolutely counts. Uh, very excited about this. Although again, I'll say I'm coming to this not knowing as much. My my training is as a prehistorian, so I can talk about the, the old, old stuff, but this stuff I'm like, oh, I, I need to learn. I, I don't know as much of the more, you know, recent, which I'm air quoting. So and this is Christina's um, period as well, though, isn't it, Christina? Yeah. You've worked on 16th century brewing as well, and especially women in brewing. Yeah, that's I'm more lean towards um, sort of an anthropological approach. So mm -hmm. why and how and like what that said about society is is really like what I'm profound. I mean, I'm profoundly interested in all of it, like to be honest, <laughs> like I yeah. could nerd out about this stuff for, for ages. And I'm so excited to find someone else who's studying <laughs> Irish beer history to nerd out with for, for a little bit today. Um, this is my favorite. I love, I love, you know, this is just so fun. <laughs> so um, Lisa and I got to co see your documentary just a month ago, two months ago, Thereabouts, yeah. um, which was amazing. Can you kind of talk about, oh gosh, there's probably so much to talk about. So let's start with the beginning there. What was the project that led to the documentary? So How the did that all start? So the project's part of the Food Cult project, and it's a it was a five it's a five year project, and this was one part of that. Um, and so we recreated a, a beer from Dublin Castle from 1574 because we had incredibly detailed records for for that. Um, we we made an ordinary beer because we wanted to understand what servants there were drinking, not a strong beer. And um, we know that eighty percent of what they were making was an ordinary beer. Um, and we did we did that. We brought together lots of people. So people um, with experience in experimental archaeology. Um, Mark Meltonville, our brewer, has a huge network of, of contacts who could build the, the, the equipment. And um, we worked with um, microbiologists. We worked with uh, agronomists, people who understand sort of ancient cereals, land race cereals and that. Um, and yeah, with the museum as well. So we were able to brew it in a 16th century kitchen, which they let us trans or sort of transform into a, into a brew house. Um, yeah, so and we, we sort of did it from start to finish. Um, and the film crew followed the process basically from the manuscript room at Trinity College, where we sort of, you know, looked at the, at the documents right through the fields and sort of the process of building things um, all the way to the end product, um, sort of to capture the sort of the, the other the other bits that you can't get into a you know an academic paper so the sensory um aspects of it and you can't you can't recreate smells and, and stuff really on, on a film but you know the, the bits that creative storytellers are interested in how the grain moves in the wind and what the the wort looks like trickling down on an oak barrel and those you know those bits mm -hmm. to sort of bring it to life in a different way for, for people as well 
Yeah, and those bits did look beautiful too. I, I'm sure it could be, you know, it, I'm sure it's a long day when you're sort of getting up some of those more visual elements together, but it, it really did come out beautifully. And, and I think it was quite atmospheric as well that you would like to say sort of the barley just sort of wafting around in the breeze. And uh, yeah, it, was, it, was... it looks like it all happened very naturally, but it took all <laughs> hours and hours and hours of standing in a field while right. the barley blew around <laughs> to get that. And you know, all the sort of light, the light in that building was just incredible because it's a yeah. 16th century house and it has sort of, um, it's very dark inside, but they waited for ages to just get the light hitting the, and um, coming in the window and hitting the equipment and that. And the same at Warminster at the Maltings, um, they spent ages really carefully watching the tasks and sort of trying to, you know, transmit the physicality of the work into into the, the film as well. So a lot of care was put into all of those, um, all of those aspects of it. Yeah. And Can you just tell our listeners before we get too far what the name yeah. of the documentary is? Good call. It's called Drunk. <laughs> it's called Drunk <laughs> Adventures in 16th Century Brewing. <laughs> And it'll be available very soon for everybody to watch. It'll be open access and we'll have a link to it on our Food Cult website, which is foodcult.eu. Oh, that'll be wonderful. Oh, we can't wait. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, we we want to watch it again. It was it was so it was it was great because I think it really does get that balance right of both being like really informative but also entertaining. Like, you know, sometimes those can go too far in one way or or the other. And I think it really struck a nice uh a that nice was an accident balance. you know it wasn't ever it wasn't, nobody was more surprised by me people were laughing because it was never meant to be it was never meant to be you know comedic in any way but I think right. that uh, it kind of did come across that way because it's so it's such a ridiculous question isn't it really where people are drunk all the time and people sort of get on board with that the journey to discover that but yeah it was I was surprised people laughed so much during it <laughs> Actually, maybe that's a good place. And Christina, feel free to to keep me honest, though, uh, just to sort of maybe start with, like, was there a reason that particular recipe was chosen to work with? Because I know, Christina, you looked through a lot of these recipes yourself. Was did this one just kind of have more information or did it seem more kind of typical, if you like, or what was the, the kind of thought process there? Yeah, it did. It, it did. It's part of a really detailed set of accounts where you even have sort of, you know, what's consumed on a day to day basis. So you can put it into the context of other foods. You've got an idea how many people are, are dining there because you know how many messes of food are served. So you can work out a, approximately how much is being consumed. But then you have these um, accounts attached to the kitchen accounts where you've literally got and um, how much of each type of malt is used um, every time it's brewed. And how much uh, how much beer is produced from that volume of malt, which is critical to understand mm, yeah. what we wanted to know, because we, we weren't really that interested in taste or anything like that we really wanted to know, you know, could we get close to understanding the ABV, what would be the nutritional um, content of that, and to do that we needed to know what was produced how much volume we got so we we back projected to get to exactly what was produced, um, and it's rare to find that level of detail. You yeah. don't find that in brewing directions, really, or, you know, in other, you know, in recipes um, as such. And also because it's a continuous set of records for, for a couple of years, we, we knew that what we were doing was typical because it's really standard what they brew through time. Um, so, yeah, it was a very, very, and how much hops is used um, for a given volume of, of um, beer and the relative amounts of oat and barley malt and that. So it was all there, really. Um, so it was quite exciting to to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think for our, you know those modern brewers out there, the, especially the ones who are maybe sick of all the hazy things with oats, like they, there they were. So everything old is new again. It's 
twas ever thus uh yeah to a certain extent yeah As christina probably knows i mean th th this one was 50 percent oatmeal but the ones that the christchurch cathedral ones from the same period are up to 100 percent oat, oat beer oh gosh wow. i cannot imagine how uh difficult <laughs> it would be to brew that um but also what it tasted like <laughs> yeah chewy <laughs> chewy yeah <laughs> delicious <laughs> we'll have to make one and find out exactly yes. science <laughs> this, 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 this does sound like a project um <laughs> no i really really enjoyed the documentary i liked the use of animation that was put throughout of it and it was really it was really funny but it was also really informative so i think one of the things that struck me um which i was really happy to see you all confirm was that the 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 beer that you made was not this no to low alcohol beer, which is commonly something that is that you find touted by, oh, well, you know, the beer was very low ABV, so that's why they drank it all the time. So I wondered if you could speak a little bit about that. Oh, it's such a persistent idea. No one seems to know. And people get really angry about it on comments. <laughs> if I do, like, what's she talking about? Doesn't she know that she's forgotten about small beer? I mean, there is no evidence. We have no evidence in our, at this institution, for example, there was no small beer produced at all. There were two types of beer. We know from um, dietary records, you know, dietary advice that small beer was considered very unsuitable for working adults. And beer was considered a very healthy, very nutritious drink and was pr provided in huge quantities um, for them as well. So small beer is, is it's, where it's mentioned, it tends to be um, suitable for infants or for the sick, um, but would be very, very unsuitable for workers. And workers have agency. If they don't like what they're getting, they won't work or they'll complain. And we've got records of that as well. So it's kind of, again, this misnomer that people just um, accept what they're given. There's a, People have a... Have a have a right to sort of demand good quality beer and they do um and you find that there seems to be a correlation between the harder people work the better quality or the stronger the the beer that they're provided or the you know increased quantities of beer um as well so small beer probably if you've nothing else to drink um or maybe in times of grain shortage but it's not widely consumed certainly not by um by workers who need calories to to sustain what they're doing yeah, absolutely. I thought that was I so interesting. The, I think it might be on the um, one of the exam courses over here. Um, <laughs> a levels or one of the other. Yeah, it seems to be on a curriculum somewhere, and it's it's just passed on and on. And there's never been any evidence for it. It's just one of those really, really those the, the two percent myth. <laughs> No, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's up there with the oh, they made the beer because the water wasn't safe. Oh, like, no, 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 no. <laughs> stop. <laughs> it's 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 like this idea that just because they drank it a lot, well, we can't we can't visualize. I think sometimes, especially like maybe in in academia, this idea that people also like liked to drink for fun. So we're like, oh no, it's really serious. It was part of nutrition, and it's like, yeah, but it was also part of a good time. Like, and there's plenty of evidence for that as well. And it, for some reason, sometimes I think there's this idea like it can't, it can also be fun. And then if it is, then it's not something for maybe serious study. Like if we say, you know, like sometimes people got drunk and that, that's definitely a thing. There's so much evidence of that. Yeah. Or there's evidence of just not drinking small beer all the time. And however that worked out with the nutritional needs given across the day and the kind of work they were working, it might have been a very different thing than, you know, someone 
um, drinking like five pints back to back at a bar at night, you know? Um, but yeah, I just sometimes wonder why that is just so incredibly persistent and it just does not go away. Neither of them, the water one too, very persistent. Yeah. And we would, we've no idea. I mean, we know what's consumed in some contexts as part of the working day, but we've no idea how much people consume on top of that for, for leisure. Um, mm-hmm. and there's so much complaints about drunkenness in this in this period but again it's this moral panic that pops up in history <laughs> through time for you know if it's not gin later it's it's uh it's 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 sugar at some point and it's beer at some other point and it's this kind of moral worry about sort of um alehouses and disorder and, and things like that that sort of um suggest there was a lot of drinking but again it seems there's not a problem um I don't know what you think about this Christina but it seems to be in the records that I read there's not a problem with with drinking um being drunk is the problem really so it's just it's being it's being or it's drinking moralists um it's absolutely fine to drink for work and it's fine for for you know the lord deputy at dublin castle to give people eight or nine pints a day and those same people are the ones that are complaining about drunkenness so it's quite interesting <laughs> what what what's going on is it just a really high tolerance for drunkenness or is it is it the behavior that you exhibit when you're drunk is that the problem um, but yeah, in, in itself, drink is is fine and even necessary for your health. But it's being drunk um, to get to drink to intentionally get drunk. That seems to be where the where the sin yeah. this period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this idea of intentionally losing control. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, or that tippling, sitting in the alehouse all day because it's seen as really wasteful. You're not being productive, mm. you're not working, mm. but industrious. So that's a problem as well. But but drinking for fuel is is fine. That's yeah. so interesting. It's all about the context. Like everything, this ma- totally makes sense, though. That and and you know, as as ever, when we're looking at the the records, you know, we see what people complained about. We don't see the yeah. things they didn't complain about. So it's still like you know, the it's like the trip advisor of the you know 16th century. So it's uh, someone was yeah. about something. But there has been so much good research done in recent in in recent years on the more positive cultures of the alehouse. This idea always that, oh, people were poor and they were miserable and they drank to forget their worries. And that's sort of, um, that's kind of what Christina was suggesting a while ago, isn't it? But that's kind of been debunked a lot and people are much more interested now in the, the positive aspects of yeah. the rituals of drinking and what that meant in terms of sociability and um, male identity as well and, and things like that. Um, and there's been great sort of anthropological historical studies on, on what drinking health meant and what what really happened in the alehouse you know what mm-hmm. people did there and that so it's quite it's an interesting new view on drinking in, in in recent years yeah there's there's evidence um which i will show you in my book about the medieval stuff. <laughs> um and the irish stuff um there's poems and stuff that were definitely designed to be read out loud to drinkers probably in alehouses um and they're funny and they're definitely showing people we're having a good time and this is in Ireland so you know I mean there's plenty of evidence that this was a fun thing to do enjoy yourself we're going to entertain you with all of these fun stories and this is you know this is a great place to be this is a place to find community this is a place to to hang out with your friends or you know make business deals or you know marry off you know your your kids to your neighbor or you know all those sorts of conversations that we have different versions of now you know the 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 alehouse has functioned much the same as it always has Mm. and it's a place people had fun Mm. it's really cool that you've got you know you've got evidence like that because we have a lot less don't we in ireland than for other there's kind of always been that idea that there were less alehouses because of the traditional 
um, ideas of hospitality that you didn't need them as yes. much because it was much more much less towns and, and that mm. sort of thing but certainly from the 17th century they're really popping up everywhere you know you can see by the licensing of this huge increase in them just as there is everywhere else but it's really good that Christina is able to look back further and find some evidence for it because it's not been studied really at all for, for Ireland yet not for this Christmas not for this Christmas but it's coming it's coming so next soon. Christmas yeah. <laughs> soon 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 but um back to you Susan because I just I've been fascinated with your work um I, I'm just really really curious do you have any other publications besides the documentary coming out about maybe more of the details of like the recipe and, and sort of how that about yeah we published um we published the the full findings in the historical journal it just came out quite recently and that publication is called understanding early modern beer and it's open access so anybody can can read it uh, and i'm very proud to say that it's not um it's an academic publication but it's very accessible we've had lots of people kind of contacting us saying you know thanks for writing something that everybody can understand so it's not bogged <laughs> down and sort of um, probably part of that's probably because I'm not a brewer, so I have to understand it. I had to understand it myself, so it's kind of written. So it's like as I'm puzzling it out as we as we go along. So yeah, that's the main the main output from it. Um, and then on our food court website, there's a little exhibitions page where we've got a, a sort of mini um, exhibition, just a summary of what we did with nice pictures and things like that, so people can read us an you know abbreviated version of it as well. Awesome. And for listeners, we will link everything in the show notes so you can just directly go right to it and find all these things for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And and maybe if we shift over a little bit to that, that, uh, that, that brew house, they let you build to, to really kind of test things <laughs> out kind of what, what was that process? Obviously you had done all the research leading up to that, but then curious kind of the logistics of actually uh, making it happen. The logistics. <laughs> <laughs> the logistics. Well, first of all, we had a trial run in the March, just as COVID was, was starting and oh, gosh. shut down. So um, so the Wilden Downer Museum is in a living history museum, if, if, if people aren't familiar with it, um, in Sussex, and it is just the, the best place ever. It's like stepping back in time. Um, so sort of endangered houses are taken down and then they're rebuilt brick for brick. Um, so you can walk through Saxon houses, 18th century houses, Tudor houses, and the Tudor the Tudor house um, is basically set up. It has a fire. It's got, you know, it's 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 what you'd expect a Tudor house to be. But people are obviously brewed at home a lot as well. So we were able to bring our equipment in there and just um, repurpose it. Basically, it was really really um, Mark the brewer felt it was really important to brew in in sort of an authentic space because the space that you work in affects everything that you do. And so it took us that much closer to the processes of of the past as well. Um, so the space we, we were lucky again there were there were things to think about the water was obviously important um so we, we sort of thought about a few different venues but we um the water quality there was very similar to what was in Dublin so that was that was important to us as well um and also um yeah then the equipment that was very interesting because it was just you know I think that's sort of sustainability issue turns up a lot in in in, in the issues that we faced is then there wasn't um there was one cooper left one independent cooper left in the UK to make oh, wow. the barrels and he's now retired so there doesn't seem to be a cooper that that can do oh. that now there wasn't a coppersmith in in Ireland or the UK so that big copper came from Portugal um oh, and, wow. so, and then the smaller bits of equipment 
we were just so lucky because um, the historical interpreters at work on the site are just so skilled. They can whittle up a, 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 a brewing ore sort of in, in, we've got, you know, footage of that where Adrian is just literally making one outside the door or you need one of those. Okay, I'll just, here's one I whittled <laughs> earlier. <laughs> and then, you know, there was um, a basket weaver um, working there as well. And again, these are people that put on displays of, of heritage crafts for people sort of during the week. But uh, Mark gave her sort of uh, an, an image of what a Wilch, the filter filtration system would have looked like. Um, and then she went away and sort of made a prototype and then made that, um, you know, using her skills and that. So it was amazing to see all those people brought together in that in that space, too. And then to be able to give them a voice in the documentary to talk about their their crafts and that, because, again, all of these are crafts that are dying out. Um, and I think the project in, in one way highlighted just how urgent it is to sort of try and preserve those crafts or we won't have them. We won't have those skills yeah. in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. And that part and was so it, fascinating. That was sorry, just the the where, you know, the, the where she was showing the weaving and and there was sort of like a we hope this works. But you know, again, some of this has to be guesswork, but it also seems so, you know, when you have someone who had the knowledge of how these things should work, you it seems almost obvious to them. So I think there is that piece too of just having these different again the, the mm -hmm. interdisciplinary uh i think nature of it is just yeah. so so helpful then there were a lot of moments though it was like oh please god let it work because <laughs> nothing's coming out and there was one day where it just went horribly wrong and the um part of it was because we were the film crew were there and that does change the dynamic of what's mm. happening so there may have been a little bit too much stirring for example because it's like <laughs> can you just stir it a few, for a few more minutes for the camera and so and the, the combination of having a very high oak content the water was a little bit too hot um we stirred it too much and we basically produced a very expensive um vat of porridge <laughs> yeah and it was just it was an awful feeling where 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 we, it should have poured out through the through the wilch and nothing came out we're like oh no i'm trying to get rid of that it was just <laughs> trying to dispose of a mashed tongue full of porridge was just a <laughs> and then it was really worrying because again because we had no one had done this before so if it went wrong we didn't really know why at that stage and we didn't know it was at the start of the project is it all going to go wrong and have we just completely wasted our time with with, with this so there were tense moments like that <laughs> um, speaking of sort of crafts and craftsmen and things that you know might not exist anymore i thought it was really interesting how you went about locating sort of the hops you chose and the malts you chose mm -hmm. in the documentary and i was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that yeah, the hops, um, we wanted to, we worked with Peter Darby, who um, was kind of running the Hops Association. He's an expert on on hops. Um, and we what all I really, the only information I, I knew I, I had was that in the records, it, it does state, obviously, they're, they're important in the 16th century. Um, and they don't have names, so they're not... Um, right you might have like Alsacian hops or that the what we, we knew from the accounts that we needed Flemish hops that's all it says they, they're not described in any way so we needed sort of the and an, a sort of a heritage hop that had roots in Flanders that was still growing um mm. and I don't not they're not even growing in, in the low countries now so it was sort of it was finding this this hop called Tallhurst which um is is a descendant of the red, Flemish red vine um, and still grows in the UK. Um, there's five plants, two at the na the National Hops Collection and three belonging to a lovely woman called Dorothy Hollenby, who's also in Sussex. And so for about three years, 
the Hobbs collection and Dorothy were collecting their, their because these five plants produce tiny amounts of, of hops and we just wanted it everything had to be right um and so so we waited basically and then um she'd pick it and um send it to me and I'd freeze it by the end of three years there was little packets of hops in various people's oh, freezers all right where I trying to keep them. and then we still couldn't get there I mean again this was a real problem because there was one summer where the the heat it was so hot that all the hops yeah. died and that, that's happening again and in fact she's just told me now that she's no longer growing tallhurst because it's not it won't um it doesn't survive the heat oh gosh um, yeah and so we were so down to the wire that literally, as you saw in the documentary, we were picking that year's harvest the day before um, we, we brewed. So we had to rush them down to the museum and and um, and get them ready to use. So, yeah, that was um, there was also a case where a, a batch of hops went missing. It got oh, sent gosh. to Trinity College um, instead of to the UK during COVID, got no. lost from the university, got sent back to the UK and went missing um the courier lost it it was going around in the system for days and of course I was frantic because this was three years down the line and we needed a couple yeah. more ounces <laughs> um, and so yeah we got there we got there in the end but it was a uh, lots of tense moments um so that was that and the 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 grains we knew we needed bear barley there's quite a few references to bear in the in the accounts um no there wasn't any bear growing commercially in Ireland then um and so we went to Orkney for that and worked at the Agronomy Institute for um for bear then and that was really important because the landrace barleys um they're very different you know they're they're they're, they're growing much taller they've got a different root system and there hasn't been a huge amount of research on the significance of that in terms of what you produce so that was important and again we it's a compromise because we don't have an equivalent in Ireland um and land races are different wherever you put them that's the whole right. point so again it's not the same as what would have been in 16th century ireland but it was as close as we could get really to um to that so that was that was sourced on orkney and then it was sent to warminster maltings for um malting because they still it's the oldest maltings in the uk and they still use traditional floor malting practices so that was as close again as we could get to um to that too <laughs> oh, I know it's so and, cool. and and I guess too like it's I, I, you know because obviously this was a, you know more than a step up if you like from what people would have been making just domestically like this they were obviously producing at, at Dublin Castle for large amounts of workers so this is I, I don't want to say commercial necessarily but it's it, it's for a lot of people it's it's a big operation so it's obviously different from what would have been made by people in their homes but I, I guess would you have had a larger scale at that point or, or would this be kind of the the maximum that you would see i i, I don't I, I know i don't have a good sense of this but i work out that they're produced they're producing about two hundred and seven thousand pints a year so that okay. is that is quite a lot of um quite a lot and um domestic brewing is is huge i mean there's so many complaints there's a complaint in particular in cork about a brewer saying there's no work for me because everybody's brewing their own, their own <laughs> beer. it's huge it's huge in that in that period and um and so there are bigger I suppose, especially once hops becomes more established, then you start to get slightly, slightly bigger, more commercial breweries because the beer that's produced lasts a bit longer. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so then that then it starts to commercialize. But even into the 17th century in Ireland, it's a mixture, you know, these sort of sure. big centers like Dublin, you probably have some bigger, some bigger outfits, but mostly around the country, it's still sort of small scale domestic brewing. But I would say because a lot of people are 
comparing this to like Norwegian farmhouse brewing stuff, it's absolutely nothing like that. It's much right. more, it's much more scaled up and it's much more sort of semi the earliest kind of commercialized brewing, I guess, um, that we can yeah. locate. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I do feel like that was one of the takeaways from watching the documentaries you're watching. You're like, oh, there, there are things about this that resonate if you're a home brewer, but also you're like, oh, but this is scaled up. This is not what I would do at home. Even even now, it was, you know, a more, if you like, professionalized uh Yeah, and of course, we had, we had to dramatically scale down from what they were doing, mm. um, for, for, you know, because of the equipment size and that. So they would have had much bigger equipment um, and even sort of, you know, parts of it were mechanized in that in ways that we don't really we'd have no idea you know mm. um and that but yeah so so yeah we had to scale back um to make it feasible but yeah it is definitely much more on the sort of early commercial scale than than anything else yeah and, and christine i'm taking a, a mental note i feel like maybe you and, and liam need to go figure out that that the bit about the mechanization that we don't know i feel like he might somewhere he might have you know he might know these things so liam if you're listening just Maybe there's another book in there for someone. So <laughs> as always, more research is needed. So. More research is needed, yeah. <laughs> well, there's um at the National Museum of Archaeology, there's medieval massive brewing pans that you can go see, which are really, really cool. And I highly encourage everyone to go have a look. They're huge. Like they're huge, some of them. So that can kind of give you an idea of like, and that's medieval. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I will say it's really interesting because, yeah, the complaints about from Susan Zero, like everybody brewing is just so funny, like to me, like it, like in the best way. It's just really interesting um, One of, because it, it seems to have changed from the medieval period. So mm. in a lot of like a lot of other countries, you have this situation where you're actually, you know, concentrating brewing into fewer hands, where in Ireland, it's like the opposite. We're getting more people brewing from what had happened in like earlier periods of medieval Ireland so I find that all very very fascinating but I'm not going to reveal my whole book um, <laughs> um but yeah no very very cool very cool um so what is next for you in sort of the beer horizon or what else is coming out of this project or what else would you like to share with us well, yeah, I mean, beer, beer sort of took over for a while, but there is a lot of other, there's a lot of other work sort of ongoing at the yeah. moment we're interested oh. in. The one aspect of this is that we're interested in trying to understand um, if there's evidence in the skeletons that we've been looking at for beer drinking. So there's a sort of a, a side project on isotope analysis, looking at oxygen isotopes to see if we can, um, it's very experimental, but to see if we could even pinpoint at the, the sort of the life um in the life cycle when people start to drink more because when you mm. brew beer um if you oh, cool. brew or stew um the water before you drink it it changes the isotope the isotope so it looks different than if you're drinking lots of water for example so we're trying to understand that so some of that beer was sent to um janet montgomery in, in durham and she's been working on it to see how it changed the isotopes and then we're also looking at that trying to find evidence for that in the skeletons as well so that's an interesting one um and then there's all the other um the other outputs there's a there's a book that looks at food in general by different food type sort of trying to look at the the, the cultural significance of food as well as consumption and beer is just one chapter in in that but we're trying to contextualize that in terms of the broader food package really um and then each work um you'll be interested in this lisa in particular we've got one project where we've basically 
taken the evidence from excavation reports from around 200 sites around around Ireland and we've got a very big database now so we're trying to see if we can look at the geography of food so oh yeah um so can we see for example can we correct some of the myths so again this idea that everybody just lived on oat cakes um right. that the Irish didn't eat any meat um, and then everybody was religious and fasted all the time. We're able to correct almost all of those myths right. by looking at the sort of, you know, the the archaeological evidence now. In I love that. Yeah. with the skeleton and skeletal evidence, uh, and that and that takes us to places that we can't really get with the historical record because we can look at Dublin Castle, for example. Yeah. Um, but we need to we need to work with other people, especially archaeologists, to see if this is typical and what we can what we can find elsewhere. Um, so we're complicating um ideas about food and drink by bringing everyone together to, to look at it in detail. Oh, that's, that's, it's a good complication. We love that. Yeah. It's a good complication. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I don't know. So I, I know, um, I, I, again, I know you, you made the beer and maybe, maybe we'll talk for, for a moment about uh, how did you find it uh, when you finally tasted it did you see my face on that I, it was it was a very it was a unique that was, look. Yeah. that was one of those moments where people laughed it was completely unintentional to be fair it had been sitting around for a while yeah, yeah. at that stage and it doesn't keep even with sure. hops, it really doesn't keep so it was quite it was quite bitter um it was quite it was very light colored I guess I didn't expect that because of the oats I don't know why mm. I expected it to be he heavy but it was really you know very pale um light drinkable beer i could see why you would you could drink a lot of it um and uh i guess it was quite quite refreshing maybe but it tasted almost like cidery it was very the hops was very yeah. mild it tasted quite almost more fruity i guess yeah um i think the bear barley produced it produces quite mild beers as well and those older hops are very very mild compared to what people are used to drinking now those IPAs and that so yeah it was quite quite mild but yeah it was it was nice but I'm not sure I'd want to drink lots of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and I know all of our homebrewers listening are hearing you say sort of cidery and they are assigning different flaws you know different faults yes. to it you know right now they're you know they're they're doing their thing but uh yeah but someone but again, out there I... is thinking acetaldehyde right now <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. And and again, I'm sure there are people who would love to geek out about kind of, you know, the the, the yeast element. And again, you know, that that's such a sort of wild card um, because there's no way to have a, basically a, a, a yeast from that era. I mean, it will have evolved beyond, you know, no, whatever you that was. Make, exactly. You have to make decisions. So there's things that no. you can't. You go, again, we get as close as we possibly can. We worked with microbiologists um, who worked with the, the National Yeast Collection in the UK um, to find the, the sort of closest living ancestor to beer clade one, which is on sort of the, the yeast family tree. It's the closest living ancestor to the first um, standardized beer yeast because there weren't any pure cultures until yeah. 1880. So, yeah, so that's as close as we could get. And there's been questions kind of about um, mixed fermentation and, you know, contamination of the of the yeast and that because it's quite an open, an open sure. process. And I guess... Um, what John, our microbiologist, has said is that um, is it would probably have been a, a problem if we continued on for months down the line and it became it became contaminated. But that one yeast would always be dominant um, mm. in any case, um, and that even even choosing one back then, all yeast would have been mixed to a certain extent. Yeah. So again, it's just you know it's it's um it's it's doing the best the best you can. So again, it was really interesting to see how that yeast worked though, because we tried we had a control 
batch where we used um, ringwood um, ale yeast, which was kind of a sort of semi-modern one. Um, and in those conditions, the beer just died. It became <laughs> it became um, contaminated and grew bacteria really quickly. Whereas our, our old yeast did seem to be designed to work under those conditions. It was it was really very quick and it worked very well. So that's interesting. But I guess if we were going to the next stage would probably be to do very detailed fermentation studies if you were repeating it over and over again to see what does grow um, in, in the, that sort of environment and the impact that has on, on flavor and on um, on alcohol production, things like that, too. Yeah, absolutely, because I think, you know, we, we have no way of knowing, again, what, what would have made those workers back in the day complain? Like, would it have been that it was weaker? Would it have been the flavor? Would it have been a color? Like, we just don't know what might have, you know, set them off. Well, they do, they do like. complain. They yeah. complain when the beer is too sharp, for example, and they oh, complain okay, when the beer is yeah. too sour, and then they refuse to drink it and that. So they are used to drinking it before it goes off, before it turns to vinegar, which yeah. is quickly, yeah. quite, quite quickly, yeah. Um, so they are sort of used to sweeter, sweeter beers, probably. Mm. Yeah, they do complain a lot about bad quality beers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Christina, you probably have all kinds of stuff uh, in your forthcoming books on people complaining about beer that's gone yeah. off or, yeah. I'm not going to get too much into it, but there's a really funny letter by a monk who's in Belgium who complains about the beer in Belgium being so bad that it should be tortured in hell. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh, the Belgians. Do they even know about beer? I mean, come on. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. I mean, as long as as long as people have been making beer, there have been people leaving like bad their version of untapped reviews. <laughs> Someone always has a more sophisticated palate than everyone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, but then that's probably like a question for future research is, you know, we know that this is what, what they were making for the workers to drink. Would it have been different for you know, the, the monks or kind of your almost sort of civil service class? Or do we know how that broke down at all or, or you know, how those recipes might have differed? No, not really. I mean, you know, again, to get to get the exact volumes produced is very rare. So yeah, yeah. that means everything, doesn't it? So all we can say at that at that institution is that. 80% of what was produced was this so-called ordinary beer. Yeah. So we assume there's a record that says that the strong beer was reserved to his lordship only. So there <laughs> seems to be some. Um, and then, of course, wine drinking is very common, um, uh, you know, amongst sort of elites and office holders yeah. in that too. So it's not just beer. Um, and then there's an urban-rural distinction in that beer does seem to be a more um, urban drink in this in this period ale is probably still more common in rural areas um as well as other drinks so yeah again there's kind of there's a so there's probably a social distinction but a geographical and regional distinction yeah too. and i guess beer would have been because it's so variable in terms of what you produce it would have been different wherever you wherever you went yeah. oh see again so much to study so yeah so cool. <laughs> in future phd yes. yeah <laughs> Absolutely. So what what is on the front for you going forward? So you've kind of mentioned some of the projects that you're doing with the analysis of of beer and and food all over Ireland and and even when people started drinking, which is really cool. But um, any any interesting future projects that you haven't started yet or maybe in the pipeline or anything like that? Yeah, I'd like to do some more on on um bread and beer maybe we neglected mm. bread and i think that would be very interesting as the other sort of staple 
And I'm interested in how those quality of those foods change um, due to industrialization. So maybe looking at before and after and not just thinking about the way that systemizing food um, and globalization is impacted on all these things like sustainability and the, the quality of local produce and the, the regional variation in that, but thinking about when and why that happened and how that impacts on social and cultural, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, aspects as well. So, so yeah, maybe more food down the line, but all of this depends on funding because it's not, yeah. it's expensive to look at things like that. And again, finding good, good collaborators and um, yeah, thinking about it. So there's the, there's the germ of an idea in that sense, but yeah, it needs a lot of work to think about where, where we might go with it. Yeah, as always, more more funding is needed too, folks. So that's you know, <laughs> you know think more good funding, think good thoughts. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Do you have any final questions, Lisa? Oh, I mean, I feel like I I could ask all sorts of nerdy <laughs> questions about it all all evening, but I, I think for, for me, it's it's really just once the. Uh, documentaries available for others to watch I would be really curious to see if uh, again homebrewers and other kind of interested people sort of take it and, and run with it almost try to you know do their own version and see if people almost uh, you know compare contrast see what they come up with I'd love to see how it comes out differently under different conditions and mm -hmm. I would, say, I think, I would yeah. say that's one thing we didn't do was sort of use those you know use that um and do it under a modern uh, with modern equipment because that would be a very interesting kind of control you know to see what to see if that made any difference because then you could get a better insight into what the um the significance of the technology was mm -hmm. uh, so again yeah it's just again things that you can't necessarily do now because of the shortage of those ingredients but yeah. there's other people growing heritage um crops at the moment um, like Morris DC at Canvas Brewing, who's working on, who I think you spoke to as well. So there's the thing, things have evolved since we started this. So I think I feel much more hopeful with with um, people like Morris working on, on these things now that there's going to be room for these things done and, and done without having to go all over Europe <laughs> or, the, or the British Isles to get ingredients. So that's really hopeful um, in terms of experimentation down the line. Yeah, even if it's just on a small scale, you know, that's a start mm -hmm. and see where see where that goes. And and I'd be curious too to see if there are these other kind of pockets, if you like, of either, you know, heritage grains that people don't even know are out there, you know, maybe they're just in someone's, you know, left field and who knows. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah. So watch that the space, I suppose. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> and we will have you back on. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That would be great. <laughs> yeah. And um, yes, yeah, so listeners, we will have all of this linked so you can go watch the documentary when it's out and you can read their article and, and get to read more and see the pictures and stuff about the project. So we will have all that for you down in the show notes. And I want to say thank you to Susan again so much for coming on the show. Do you want to give our listeners your um, any of your social media accounts so they can follow you and follow along with the project? Oh my God, I can't remember. <laughs> I'm not on social media very much, but the best place to follow the project at the moment, I am on, on Twitter or whatever it's called now. Um, I think it's at Susan Flavin or maybe at Flavin Susan. I can't remember. Um, but yeah, and on the Food Cult website, I, I keep that up to date. So anything that we're doing, I usually put a news feature up there. So it's um it's just foodcult.eu. So everything's up to date there, yeah. And find me on Twitter. I am there. I just can't remember what, <laughs> what that looks like. <laughs> we'll we'll find the right one and we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, don't we worry. Will. <laughs> we will. Yeah, and, and again, we'll say to people, you know, go watch the documentary when you can. I, I, again, shout out for those little animations to the sort of woodcut style. They they were amazing. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. 
That's fantastic, yeah. It's uh, Marianne, the animator. That was one of the most exciting things for me to see those woodcuts brought to life. So, yes, if, when, when the documentary is available, you need to wait till the very end because that's where those woodcuts are uh, are brought to life and it's lovely to see. <laughs> uh, it really is. It's a fantastic project. I think we were excited to get that that sneak peek, but just thrilled to have you here because I think, again, there's there's so much we could talk about. And, and, and again, to talk too about kind of beer's role in this kind of wider food culture mm -hmm. and um and again how it's different things to different people different times there's just like there's so much to geek out about so yeah well thanks for having me it's been great uh, great to chat definitely and we definitely hope to have you back again soon to talk about more of your research and more things that you find sure. so thank you so so much susan for coming on and we really appreciate it and thank you all for listening and hopefully you will come back and listen to us soon goodbye bye Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.